Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 713 with Monty Silva. Tracking, yes, but also I think it goes beyond that. And in creating those moments, those touch points with the person, uh, teaching moments, when someone makes an amazing sauce, you go, who made the sauce? And, and you're never sure, is he going to like rip you apart or is he going to say it's great? And he'd say, man, that's on point, bro. Good job. Good job. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. For years, restaurant owners have been pleading for more integration in their restaurants, and they finally got it. Restaurant 365 is a cloud-based, all-in-one, restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with POS systems, payroll providers, and food and beverage vendors. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and a free inventory build in Restaurant 365 a value of $5,000. What is going on, Unstoppables? I have a great show for you today. Uh, Before I give you the teaser on that show or today's show, I want to let you know that we're bringing back the masterminds. We're going to do it better than ever before. Kind of really, this is a part of me shifting Restaurant Unstoppable's mission to be more impactful, to have higher touch. It's less about the quantity and more about the quality uh, and the relationships with my listeners. And what we want to do is bring back the masterminds. We're going to be hosting four masterminds at once per quarter. So that means we have four people, four masterminds, 16 open slots. And what we're doing is just kind of putting this out there to see which demographic of restaurateur is most interested. And we're going to start grouping people accordingly because we, we really want to have people coming together who are at the, the the same stages in their career, whether that's you're opening a restaurant, whether that's you um, chose to close your restaurant during this time and you want to come back stronger than ever, or you are a multi-unit operator that has say drive throughs and you were able to stay uh afloat during all this and now you're going to come out of this thing stronger than ever because you were able to to survive and you want to uh, collaborate with other restaurateurs who are also doing really great so you guys can like really be better than you've ever been before those are the, the three demographics we're thinking about right now but who knows maybe i'm missing one that's even more interested in joining this mastermind so again we have four groups of four 16 open slots and we already have a handful of people interested so i strongly urge you to reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Put in the title of that email, Mastermind, so I know you're interested. And tell me a little bit about yourself, and we'll get you on the list, and we'll try to put you in the right group. Uh, and I'm really excited about this. I've been doing these masterminds for five years at least now. And some of the, the earliest members of the masterminds are just going out there and just doing really great things. And they're actually been guests on the show since being a part of the mastermind. So I'm really excited for this. Uh, do not hesitate. I'm telling you, these spots will go fast. Uh, in today's episode, we have Monty Silva, and it was a really great chat. Some of the things we talk about are how to put pressure on your people without pushing them away. Really important stuff there. Uh, and this idea that nobody cares about you until they know that you care about them. Managing the bottom line, how to do that, some tricks in, in the trade to how to manage those bottom lines. Uh, making food sexy, identifying touch points within your business, and then cor- incorporating them within routines. 
This idea of tracking numbers, uh, but not necessarily tracking people. And then lastly, how to get your team to take ownership of the business, even though they don't technically have equity in the business, but you can do things within your business to give them that sense of ownership and it can be so powerful. Then obviously we talk a little bit about the coronavirus and uh, Monty's approach to handling that and what he's going to be doing to uh, come out of this thing even stronger than before. All right, here it is. It's a good one. Enjoy it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Monty Silva. My man, Monty, are you feeling unstoppable today? Eric, I am feeling unstoppable. Yes, that is what we like to hear. So Monty Silva has over 40 years of experience in the restaurant industry. He has worked for Wolfgang Puck, Acme Feed and Seed, Fleming's Steakhouse and Wine Bar, Merchants, Boundary, Watermark, Piatti Italian Restaurant, and Jeff Ruby Culinary Entertainment. He has 20 years of experience in management as director of restaurants, director of operations, general manager, regional training manager, chef, wine director, it keeps going, service manager, and bar manager. Monty has also worked as a regional sales manager for a wine importer in Los Angeles and consulted at Vine Street Wine and Spirits and uh premier liquors as well as for restaurant groups and on top of all this you have some really big news uh you're for the first time uh correct me if i'm wrong this is the first time you're taking equity in a business you're starting your own restaurant group this is the first time very exciting yes and that's gonna be made self hospitality this is literally happening as we speak and just congratulations on that brother i can't wait to dive into it Uh, before we dive into your story and to find out how you got to where you are today let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Sure. Uh, so I'm, I love this quote. I didn't write it, but, uh, attitude determines altitude. Mm. I think that, uh, how we look at life, how we look at the challenges we face, the, the successes we face, uh, really determines how high we go and, uh, we can make the best of good yeah. situations that's the bad situation i love it hearing you say that reminds me of oh my of course I'm, he's escaping my mind right now i had a, a guest on the show and he said that it's, it's all about um enthusiasm and how much added like the level of attitude you come in the, and it's the idea is whoever has the most enthusiasm whether that's positive enthusiasm or negative enthusiasm usually ends up winning. So you, you have to be mindful of that, that, that energy when you walk into a room. Are you lifting people up, right? Are you, are you, are you changing the mood instantly? And that's kind of what was going through my mind. What, who was that? Um, Carabas, Johnny Caraba. That's who it was. Who oh, said yeah. That. yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Uh, so where does it make sense to start, to start telling your story? I mean, 40 years in the industry, um, going back to 1980, why don't you just start by giving us like some snapshots of the path yeah. you took so we can get uh, the big picture. Uh, don't go into detail, just kind of like here, 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 here. And then we'll, right. I'll make some notes and we'll just, then we'll start to dissect it. Cause we had a lot to cover in the next hour and a half. Sure. So uh, I started off as a, uh, as a dishwasher at a hotel uh, in when I was 15 years old and uh, worked there as the Flamingo hotel in Santa Rosa, California. And from there, I kind of worked through uh, some other jobs, working as a prep cook, a line cook, uh, worked my way up through the kitchen, and then uh, decided to bounce to the front and got into, you know, busing tables, waiting tables, bartending, all that. Um, Tried college, that didn't really go too well. 
didn't really enjoy it. Didn't really feel <laughs> like I was getting much out of it. Uh, started touring, playing beach volleyball, two man beach volleyball. And, uh, that lasted for a couple of years. And, uh, then my sponsors, uh, dropped and I didn't have money to, to travel. So, uh, I moved to the Caribbean and ran a bar and uh, I was 27 and uh, lived there for a couple of years in St. Croix in the Virgin Islands. Nice. And, uh, it was pretty much that point where it's not, I it's realized not a bad place to be a young man. Yeah, it didn't suck. That's for sure. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's back then. This was uh, early '90s, and uh, rum. So Saint Croix makes Crucian rum, and right there in the island. And so Crucian rum for a fifth, which is a seven fifty, back in the early '90s was about a dollar ninety nine in a store. Wow. So so the mix when you're bringing Coke in from the states, the mix actually costs more than the rum. So your rum and cokes were pretty, uh, pretty yeah. stiff. I, I mean, I spent a little time in the Virgin Islands, and uh, it's just weird. Like you order a, a coke and rum, they bring you a handle of rum and a two liter coke. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like all right, it's gonna be that kind yeah. of night. <laughs> it's like, here we go. Keep going. Uh, so from there, that's where I really decided. I moved back to the states and really decided that uh, this was going to be my career. That I was in love with it, and uh, went went uh, back to work for a company that I worked for uh, as a bartender and server. And uh, they asked me to do some openings in LA, uh, some new restaurants. Uh, That was a Mexican restaurant group called Chevy's Mexican restaurant and uh, met my first mentor there. We can dig into him later, I guess. Um, And uh, moved from bar manager to assistant kitchen manager to service manager, to chef, all within a two-year period. Uh, and then my mentor left, went to another company, and I went to work for him there and became a GM. And uh, from there, went to Wolfgang Puck. was a GM for him in L.A. Then I moved to Vegas. And now, what year is it now at this point, just to kind of give perspective? Uh, let's see. Um, in 98, I went to work for Wolfgang Puck. And I was two years in LA and then two years in Vegas. And, uh, then, uh, actually it was four years in Vegas. I'm sorry. And then, um, moved to Nashville where I, where I am now and, uh, went to work for Flemings and then, uh, went to work for Watermark, which was the number one really foodie restaurant in the city at the time was the beverage director there. And uh, went from there to become a GM for Boundary and then Merchants and then uh, moved to Cincinnati for a brief period of time to work for Jeff Ruby, then came back and opened the restaurant in Nashville and then uh, went to work for Acme Feed and Seed, which was a four-story building, different things going on on each floor. And it was the 31st highest grossing restaurant in the country. Jesus. Yeah, it was uh, 18, 18 and a half million a year in sales. And uh, uh, from there, moved up into a director of operations position uh, and then um, segued from there into um, the director of restaurants for a company called Icon Entertainment. And uh, then coronavirus hit and things kind of went crazy. <laughs> I think uh, we're, we're, we're at current time now. And there's a reason why I needed you to do that. I was doing the research and I knew you had incredible experience, but like I just, I needed a map 
and you just gave us the map. So let's bring it back to the beginning. Uh, and this is the first time I've ever had my guests just kind of do that to help me out. So thank you for being willing just to just to lay it all out there. So early on, like when when did you like when did you know you loved the industry? Like what when did you fall in love? When did you know that this was going to be your path? Let's start there. Uh, well, I I loved it before I determined that it was going to be my path. So when I was an hourly employee, just enjoying uh, the cash that you got up at the end of the night, enjoying making people happy. You know, there's an instant gratification when you take care of someone and, and you can, not just in the gratuity, but just on their faces and everything, seeing um, that they had a really great time and, and being the host of that party. Uh, that's what I really loved. Uh, was definitely... Um, nice to not work at a nine to five and deal with, you know, all the things, the traffic and all those things. So that was also very nice. And, and as I later found out, you know, you could basically pick a city and then go find a job. Mm. Um, there's not a lot of careers that really offer that flexibility. And that's one thing I don't like if you're a young person listening to this and I don't think maybe it's an issue with perspective because you just haven't had a chance to live and know, but if you love this work and you're good at this work, you would literally have a ticket to anywhere you want to be in the world. And it's so powerful in trying to find your direction, trying to find your path, trying to find your purpose, right? You in, in traveling can help you find that. I, I encourage people. I would say do that instead of, instead of go to college, because once sure. you go to college, you won't be able to do that because you'll have too many liabilities. So if you're listening to this, you don't have any school loan debt and you, you want to learn, you want like you have a ticket in your hand to go anywhere right now. Know that. Sorry for interrupting. Keep going. No, no. So it wasn't until I got to St. Croix that I really realized, wow, this is, this is, uh, something that I'm passionate about. I'm, I love um, hospitality and taking care of get people. I love people, whether they're people I work with, they're people I'm taking care of. Um, I love food. I love the beverage, uh, you know, partaking of uh, beverages of all kinds. And uh, it's, it's three passions kind of all compiled into one. It's really where I, I realized that, Hey, this is what I want to do. Beautiful. Um, when you mentioned your time at Chevy's seems like, you know, it was after you gave up on your, your volleyball career that that ship seems like it had set out to sail and you have, you know, you're now redirecting your attention to a career. And it sounds like this is when you really start to buckle down and get serious about it. Is that safe to say? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, the working in the restaurant industry definitely allowed me to be able to travel and play volleyball. But, um, but, you know, I was taking a lot of time off on the weekends and everything to tour. And so um, just con- saying, okay, this is my serious career. Now I got to enter into that crazy hours, crazy night, you know, crazy lifestyle. Um, I took a pretty big cut in pay going from an hourly employee to management. Um, was this so at first- Chevy? Pardon me? Was this at the Chevy Mexican restaurant? Yeah. So I was a bartender and server for them when I prior to going to the Caribbean. And then also when I came back and, um, and, uh, so I think this was in, uh, 93, I made over 50,000, um, waiting tables and bartending. It's probably close to six Uh, figures in current time. I would imagine. 
Yeah, it was a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, my first restaurant job was $28,000 as a manager. Damn. Uh, so it's a big cut. So reflecting back your time, you, you mentioned that this is when you had a, a, a huge mentor that, that came into your life. Um, but I also want to make sure that we're not overlooking anybody. Up to this time, was there somebody within the hospitality industry who really made an impression on you? And if so, who were they and, and what was that impression? And then we'll get into this, this, this really key mentor. It sounds like who, who really influenced you at Chevy's. Sure. So, um, really prior to that, I mean, I had, uh, there was a chef owner of a, a restaurant called the refectory and he kind of took me under his wing and taught me a lot about the kitchen. Um, but it was really, I think prior to Chevy's, I really have to say that my mentors were my grandma's. Mm. Um, they were just super hospitable people. You could show up at two in the morning, you know, and they'd get up in the middle of the night and try to cook you a breakfast, you know, <laughs> after a long drive into town. So uh, just uh, they were probably my biggest influences when it comes to hospitality and the whole industry. I love it. Um, and did you say there was one other individual uh, before? between your grandparent, your, your grandmothers and this, this individual at Chevy's that you want to bring to the conversation? Uh, yeah. I mean, he just was uh, a hard ass and, yeah. uh, and you know, back in the day when kitchens were, um, where was okay to really, throw a pan at somebody. What's that? When it was okay to throw a pan at somebody. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You could throw a pan, you could yell and scream. You can say, get the hell out of here. Um, but, uh, uh, just, really learning discipline. You know, he was a big uh, influencer. So that was awesome. Nice. Um, okay. So let's bring it to Chevy's. This is kind of where, you know, you're committed to the industry. You're, you're transitioning to management. What was that transition like? It was actually really awesome. Um, I didn't, I had been out of the kitchen for a long period of time working in the front of the house and uh, their training program there's a lot of restaurant groups that their training program is you spend some time in the kitchen and you spend some time in the front and then you move to either kitchen or front of the house manager. What well, Chevy's after you were done with the initial training there, you might spend three to six months or a year as a bar manager. And then you might go into the kitchen and be an assistant KM for a period of time. And then you might bounce back out to be a service manager and you had to kind of do all those things to become a chef. And then you had to be a chef to become a GM. So there was a definite stepping stone there. And so it was just a, a really great opportunity to kind of push me back into the culinary side uh, and really, um, you know, enjoy being, being on that side again. Yeah. Just listening to you talk, one thing that, you know, there's always like little clues in the stories that my guests are telling me. And the clue that I'm getting from this part of your life, well, one, um, the significance of being well-rounded and knowing every aspect of the business. If you want to go into ownership, you need to know how the whole thing works. You don't necessarily need to be good at doing everything, but you need to at least know how it works. And the other part that I love is um, we can replicate what was happening at Chevy's in our own business where we can set a path of success where, Hey, like you want to raise. Okay. Then do these things, you know? And then when you've done those things, then we'll talk and like creating a, like that, that that's those stepping stones and, and giving people opportunity for growth and laying out the path in front of them and showing them on day one, if you want to be the chef, here's how you do it. Why is that so significant? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we all, 
when you when you stick your head down and go to work and and uh, it's nice to be able to come up every now and then and kind of see where you are, where you're going, am I on the right path? And um, and just knowing uh, that these things are achievable if you work really hard. They're not guaranteed, but they are achievable. And uh, and the opportunity presents itself. You know, at Chevy's, we are in the midst of opening a ton of restaurants. Um, the original owner, uh, Scooter Simmons, had opened up, I think, six or seven restaurants, mostly in Northern California. And uh, and then uh, we got to a point where PepsiCo bought the chain and we went to like 200. Uh, so there was significant opportunity for growth. Beautiful. Um, so who do, do we have we mentioned this mentor's name yet? We've not. His name is Tom Bryan. Okay, Tom Bryan. When did Tom Bryan come into your life? Talk to us about Tom Bryan. So when I, I, I went down to, uh, you know, I've had a crazy stories of being in situations where an earthquake just happened to pop up right where I was. Uh, so um, I went down to uh, West Covina to, to be a server trainer and a bartender trainer to help get that restaurant open. Uh, it was my first opening, and uh, I had been told by my general manager in Sacramento that if uh, that if I um, you know really worked hard, that there was a good opportunity that I would be noticed and and moved into management. Uh, Tom, I think the first four days came to me and said, "Hey, you want to move down here and become one of my managers?" So, um, you know, he afforded some opportunity, which which is always good when. Uh, you know, when you're seeking a mentor and, and they can help your career, that's always a great thing. Um, and, and he was from Buffalo, New York. Uh, I think he was 40 at the time. So he's my senior by about 10 years. Worked out all the time. Very tough New York, you know, kind of guy. Very no nonsense. Um, was extremely uh, uh, challenging on me to be my best. And, uh, uh, you know, you see these some of these things. Like, I don't know if you just watched the uh, Vegas Prize Fight Chef thing that was on, where no. uh, Amberell helped pick a chef for Caesars. But man, she was tough. She she just pulled no punches. And uh, Tom Tom was definitely this kind of a guy. Well, and, let's get uh, into that a little bit more. I think this is important because I think it's like what I'm I'm pulling from this this time of your life is that he he wanted people to grow. He, he didn't like he, he would put pressure on people to move forward. But I think there's a way there's an art to that uh, because you don't, I mean, you can be too aggressive, right? Or it might come off as a way of maybe I'm not good enough and maybe you're unsatisfied with my work. Like how did he do this in a way that was, you knew it was coming from a good point where, and he wasn't necessarily pushing people away because he was too aggressive. Right. He would, he would definitely be tough, you know, right at the the start of it, but he'd come back around and he'd say, man, I'm really proud of you the way Mm. you came through, you know, and, and when you can do that, when you, you know, he created this, this relationship where the last thing I wanted to do was disappoint him. Mm. Um, And so, um, you know, he was tough, but then he would come around and tell me I was doing a great job and, and reward me and kind of talk me through the process. Um, you know, and even say, "Hey, sorry, I was rough on you, but you know, it's not I because I don't like you. you. It's because I, I, I love you. You know, and, and I, I yeah, want to love see you. I want you to be successful. Yeah. yeah. So, how do we recreate that? Like, what what key things that we need to do to be able to recreate that? Uh, 
That's a great question. I, I've certainly tried to include that in my style of, of leadership. Um, there are fortunately some people who have said, and you're the toughest boss I've worked for, but my favorite boss. Um, you know, I, I think it's having just showing empathy and, and making sure that someone else, you know, another, it's, it's not necessarily a mantra of mine, but it's a, a phrase that I definitely agree with. Um, there's a guy named John Axwell writes books on leadership and he says, no one cares what you know till they know you care. Yes. And, and I think that that's probably the focus you need to have to really make that kind of an impact. And I just can't help but to think sometimes some people just don't have a vision for themselves, right? But if you see something in them and you have a vision for them and you share your vision for them and you can give them a vision, right? And like, Hey, like you're good at this. I see you being able to own your own restaurant someday, or I see you being able to run this whole place someday. Like you can do this or you can like go off and like open, a, a, you know, a, whatever the name of the restaurant is in, in your own community, you know, like, and if you give somebody that vision and you say like, and I'm going to help you get there and I'm going to put my time and energy to, to make sure that happens for you. I mean, why would you want to let that person down? You're, they're giving you a purpose. You know what I mean? Like they're yeah. injecting that into you. It's so powerful. And you can, you know, it's, it always cracks me up when someone says, um, you know, you remind me so much of me, you know, that's just such a weird state. It, it almost sounds egotistical. You know, it's like you, you remind me of me when I was like that. And look what you could be if you get your crap together, you know? Yeah, I feel you. Uh, so any other key lessons? I'm sure there's so much that, that Tom has taught you. Uh, but, you know, how else did you evolve? It sounds like this is the, the most transform, transformative part of your life or one of the key transformative parts of your life. How else did you evolve? What were the other big takeaways you got during this time? Sure. So from him, um, he taught me to build the top line or the bottom line by building the top line. So a lot of times you can get really focused on crunching numbers so tight uh, that maybe your uh, maybe your staff is stressed out because you don't have enough people on. Maybe um, you're not given the kind of service you should be. Uh, maybe the food quality isn't there because you cut corners. Uh, you know, maybe you're pouring inferior product behind the bar. And you can do these things that it's a short-term benefit because you see some quicker profits right off the bat, but the long-term uh, capabilities are very minimal because you're not growing the business. You start to see people not coming because they didn't feel cared for. You have a hard time getting good staff because they feel stressed out. You have a hard time getting guests back in because the food wasn't of great quality. And that's probably uh, the, the food part of things is, is probably the biggest thing. One of the two biggest things I got from working for Wolfgang Puck, obviously, was just we'll tap on the brakes. For the, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I want to dissect this whole idea and, and um, say that line one more time: managing the top by managing the bottom by managing the top. Is right. That what you so said growing today? sales. So as you as you grow sales, they say sales cures all all ills. So. Um, the more sales you have, uh, even if your labor might be a little bit higher, when you have these extra sales, other costs go down. Your lease percentage cost goes down because you're spending the same on the lease, no matter what the sales are, unless you're in a uh, base plus sales kind of a lease. That situation. variable's fixed, so right. It's the the percentage is going to change. The the amount of the actual number won't. 
Or, Correct. Yeah. So when when you're saying top managing, what do you mean by what's what's the top? What's the bottom? Just get so growing growing sales is okay. the top line. Top. Um, that's at the at, on a P and L. The first thing you see are sales, and so growing that uh, and expanding that um, to the greatest number you can get it to. Uh, it's almost kind of like the trickle down theory. You can kind of, you have more room to, to really manage the rest of the costs. But when your sales are really tight, you're already kind of starting behind the eight ball. And then you try to manage costs with very little sales and it becomes more and more difficult. Okay. So managing top line sales by managing the bottom line. So what are the bottom line items, the, the biggest items or maybe, well, yeah, let's like, well, I think the bigger items are probably pretty obvious prime costs, but what about the, the, the less obvious items, the less, the, the things that not everybody's managing that we should be managing to really make a big impact. Uh, where's the money on the table that, that he taught you to, sure. to look for? Linen, linen's a big thing. Um, there's so many companies that deliver linen and uh, it's not necessarily being managed. And that's not saying that the linen companies are uh, not to be trusted, but at the same time, um, there's two ideas behind building um, to pars. Uh, some companies, when they say, hey, we have pars, they have a set number they drop every week, and they're not taking into account what's currently on the shelf. When you do that, you could build up a surplus, and you're, not, you're paying for this as a rental pretty much every week. So if it's sitting on your shelf, you're still paying for it. Um, whereas if you are building to a par, where, hey, I need 500 napkins, there's 200 left, I only need to drop 300. Um, those, are, those are important ways to kind of manage that. And, you know, not that every linen company is like this, but, but you have a salesperson, right, that makes commission off of what they drop. And um, I won't say that everyone is necessarily completely honest. And um, so it's just you're, you're not managing the business when you're not, checking in orders and having conversations with them, um, showing them linen that came to you soiled so that you're not getting charged for it again, things like that. Okay. So, so it's kind of like having a waste bucket, like in the kitchen. And like if, if we have a mistake, it goes into the bucket. And the reason for doing that is to, to, to track how much are we throwing away so we can make sure that we're accommodating for that. Same thing with your linen. But the difference with your linen is you can get your money back because that's right. on them. They messed up. You paid for it. They didn't. It's you're, you're the customer. You're sending the food back, right? Um, so you've got to track that because you don't, you don't pay for what you don't get, right? Uh, so the other thing I think I'm pulling from you too is a lot of these, the way that their commissions build is like, if they're going to try to get you to, to go one tier up from what you really need, because for them, they earn a bigger commission, but that's just the same as having any kind of item, any kind of stock on the shelf sitting, right? That's cash. That's just sitting on the shelves where you could have that cash liquid to use in the business. So you, it's kind of like just in time ordering. You need to know exactly how many linens I need. So I have just barely enough left when the next order is coming and, and, and finding this, the sweet spot, the magical spot. Is that, is that like the, this, how to distill that lesson? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and you have, you know, if you're doing a thousand guests a week, but you're going through 3000 napkins, there's an issue, mm. you know? Yeah. What are, what is, what's your staff? It's not, it's not always on the linen company. What's your staff doing? Are they, are they using a linen uh, napkin when they're having family meal? You know, um, it's also making sure that, uh, 
you know, if, if everyone follows the health code and has a sanitizer bucket and the towel sits in the sanitizer bucket instead of around their uh, apron, then they're not going back and using multiple uh, towels throughout the shift. They've got one or two towels per shift. And that's a way to kind of issue that at the beginning of the shift, keep that locked up. And uh, that's one way to do it. Another one is repairs and maintenance. Um, so many times, you know, we either we're super busy as restaurant people because we have a million things to do or we're not gifted in certain mechanical areas. And so uh, sometimes the first thing to do is all you do is you call a plumber. Well, did you go, you know, try to plumb the clogged toilet before you called them? And so just looking for ways to be able to do some of these things in, in R&M, uh, it, it can certainly save you a lot of money as well. I love it. Any other key takeaways from Tom, uh, life lessons, how to be, how to act before moving on to your time at Wolfgang's? Uh, probably just, you know, the fact that he, I could tell he cared about me and loved me and wanted me to, to do well. Awesome. So, okay. Why you're, you're a part of this great team, right? Chevy's, it looks like they're, were they ex- expanding at this time? Were they kind of flatlined? Like why, why leave? I guess is what I'm getting at. So Tom left. Went That's to another right. You mentioned that. And, uh, and said, Hey, I really love for you to come with me. I felt like, um, career opportunity was with him. He had been uh, not only my mentor, but the one that really uh, pushed for me to get into management and, uh, and help me move, uh, you know, navigate the path uh, up to chef. And so um, I went to another Mexican restaurant group called Acapulco restaurant. And I followed him there. And uh, I think three months later I was the general manager. Got you. So, um, how long were you at Acapulco's? Uh, a couple years. Okay. Any any evolution? Why don't you just tell us when was like? Because there's so much to cover. I feel like. Why don't you just tell <laughs> us? Actually, this is a great point to take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. If you're sick of paying multiple vendors and services to outfit your restaurant needs only to deal with the frustrations of technology that's clunky and void of that seamless experience that you so need, then you've got to check out Restaurant 365, a cloud-based restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with your POS system, payroll provider, food and beverage vendors, and banks. With Restaurant 365, you'll have real-time reporting and analysis to make the best and most data-driven decisions. No more guessing. Other features include detailed daily and labor data from your POS system, accounts payable automation, automated bank reconciliation, incorporated inventory management with guidance on reducing your food costs and scheduling features to reduce labor costs and engage your employees, all saving you time, money, and headaches. Take action today and find out how Restaurant 365 is saving restaurant owners up to 5% on prime costs. That's awesome. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and get a free inventory build within the system, a value of 5k. So we're back and I think it makes sense for us just to transition now to your time with Wolfgang. Cause he, you mentioned that he was another big mentor of yours. He, he taught you a lot. So First, just give us an idea of like who Wolfgang is behind the cameras. You know, not not like on TV, but like how what kind of leader, what kind of mentor was Wolfgang? 
Sure. Or is so Wolf, Wolf I say. Uh, when he first started on television, was a little stiff. He's not like that at all. He's very gregarious, very, very friendly, very hospitable. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, his accent obviously is very endearing. And he spent a lot of time at the tables with guests. He had executive chefs at all of his restaurants. So he was able to kind of move through the room. He, you know, he'd come in, um, taste food, talk to the chefs, um, look at who's coming in on reservations and do a lot of, uh, what a manager would normally do, um, prior to opening. Uh, but then once open, he did spend a little bit of time in the kitchen, but a lot of time just talking to tables and, you know, at Spago, um, you know, the professional or the, uh, you know, the celebrities would all flock. He was the chef of the stars and they all, it was amazing. They all wanted to see him and made a huge deal about him. And here they are, you know, mega stars. Right. Uh, so his, I think what I gained most from him was a real love for the culinary arts. Um, all of his chefs would say things like make it sexy. You know, that's where I first used that phrase and I've used it for years. Make the food sexy. How do you uh, make food it looks, sexy? It's got to look good, man. You got to, you know, <laughs> you, you, you can taste with your eyes. You see something that looks great. You got to try it. Give us see three things that you can do. All of us can start doing right now to make our food more sexy. Uh, color, um, you know, adding color to the plate, building things up off mm-hmm. the plate. So they're not laying flat. Um, design you know taking a squirt bottle and making sure that the sauces look really sexy um not just kind of a blob sitting on it you know it's like presentation meatloaf, right it's all yeah, about presentation. yeah meatloaf is great but you know is it the most <laughs> sexy food you've ever seen no got you awesome so we taught you when i think the other thing that just me reading between the lines uh, i love this mentality of like he comes in. It sounds like he would come in. He would um, he would taste the food, then he would check the, the reservations, and like he had like this this routine. It sounds like, and I think there's a significance when you have so many rest- restaurants, you can't be everywhere at once. Um, but there, I mean, it's I don't really know what I'm trying to say, but it's the, the 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 significance of just kind of having like these checkpoints, right? And 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 knowing where to look to accomplish the most with as few touch points as possible so can you get into that i mean is it working into that or or, or no no you're you're absolutely right and that's critical especially if you're the chef owner of multiple restaurants if you are you know my role as the director of operations at tomcats which owned acne and some other restaurants you really have to become uh really focused on routine and it's the boringest part of your job you know walking into the, that's another thing Tom Bryan taught me is he would just berail me. If, uh, if there was a light bulb out in the restaurant, he's like, if they see the light bulbs out and they don't think you care about that, then, you know, what else do they think you don't care about? Um, and so, um, it's boring, but you know, you walk through the restaurant you make sure that light bulbs are, are working, that the restaurant is clean, that the kitchen is clean, that, people have checked reservations and these, these routine things, um, you know, really suck. It's not the best part of the job, but, but they're critical to the success of the shift. So how do you build a routine in these, these, these habits within the restaurant? How did, I mean, 
like, can you identify some of those key touch points? Like, what would that look like? What would what would Wolfgang do? What what things would he touch? And now you have to like you do these same things today because you saw him doing it. Like, what are those things? So uh, each morning I get up and uh, make myself coffee at the house, and I usually open up uh, my email, and there would be a nightly report from each man each closing manager that would kind of write a report about what happened the night before. What was sales like? Were there guest issues? Was there, um, you know, was there an accident? Were there VIPs that were in the restaurant? Was it raining? Did you have to close early? Did the power go out? Those kinds of things. And so, by doing that at home, um, you are not walking into chaos when you get in later on and go, "Well, I didn't know about that." Or, or let's say, you know, hey, we ran out of. Uh, you know, we ran out of, uh, you know, for I'll use a Mexican restaurant as an example. You know, you can't run out of avocados. <laughs> it, guacamole is a prevalent part of, you know, so, so um, if you had to go to the store um, or, hey, this, this item broke, we need a new one, you could actually make that trip on your way to the restaurant rather than get to the restaurant, find out about, what went wrong and then have to go from there. Um, the other thing I would do um, from home is uh, a lot of people use hot schedules. I'm a big fan of that. It's a, it's a uh, software that you can use for writing schedules and whatnot. So as the director of operations, um, I could look at each restaurant's hot schedule. I could see which managers are working, which chefs, which, and then I could, I could look at the amount of servers, bartenders, whatever, and I get an idea of are we going to be properly staffed or, uh, and then I also look at open table. Uh, I could see uh, open table from each restaurant and I can look and go, wow, there's 300 people coming in. There's only seven waiters. That's probably not going to be good. And I could kind of direct the teams to, to bring some extra bodies in or whatever. Gotcha. So, being able to look at some things before you really get into the restaurant, like reservations, staffing, uh, and just what happened the night before. Mm -hmm. And then you walk into a restaurant and you already kind of have a game plan of what you need to do. And, and, and I try not to bother managers on their days off. So being able to look at hot schedules and seeing, Hey, this person's off. What I need to talk to them about can wait till they're back from their days off or, um, or, Hey, this is a good chance for me to pop in and talk to that assistant manager about something because I see that they're open. Yeah. So it's just a lot of pre stuff like that. And then doing a walkthrough, like I said, and just making sure that things are ready to go doing a line check to make sure that the food on the line, you know, every, the mise en place is all set up and everything looks great. Um, and you know, maybe a quick powwow with, uh, the management team or a pre shift with the employees. And, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of it. Yeah. So what what Monty is explaining right now is the trust and track approach to management where you empower your team to, to do the job, but to give them everything they need to do the job, uh, the culture, the, the systems, the tools, the processes, and then 
you track it. You come in, you have your touch points, you look at the numbers to make sure everything is where it's supposed to be. You're checking the vitals, right? And, and if there's a vital, like just like a doctor is checking the vitals and the, 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 they're looking at the chart, there's a number that's off. Why is the number off? And then you, you pull back some layers, right? And you, you trust your people to do the job and you track, even down to you trust them to cook the food. And now you're walking through and you're tasting all the sauces. That's tracking too. You can't look at, there's no, unless you're, I mean, I'm sure there's a way to probably send the food to a lab, but who has time to do that? You're just going to taste it to make sure it's on track, right? Um, and then de- developing routine around it. So these things become habitual. So you don't have to think about it. It's the same thing every day. And when you create routine and ritual, it reduces so much energy because like, your brain is a huge like energy suck. If you have to like like think about well, what am I going to do now? If you're just constantly reacting, but you, if I mean, you're just going to use so much energy. But if you create routine around that becomes habit and you don't even think about it, you're just going through the motions. It's so powerful. Yeah. And you don't really, you know, it's not even just tracking, although that's very, very important. Um, there's a, you're setting the example as the leader. Hey, I care about this enough to look at it. So I want to make sure you care enough about it, you know, and that's, you know, so that leadership style of, of making sure that you're um, holding yourself to the same accountability you hold your people is really important. But when I do a walkthrough and I'm just looking at light bulbs and stuff, I'm also saying hi to the staff, you know, showing them that I care about them. Hey, how are you, Steve? You know, what, what's going on with your, um, you know, with your, your son, your two-year-old son, how's he doing? Um, and uh, it's critical. I think that, you know, if you just make it about tracking, then it's like, Oh crap, here's the box. Yeah. You know, and- we got our stuff is together rather than, Oh man, he comes over and says hi to me every day. He cares about me. Uh, he cares about the food quality that's coming out. He cares about being a leader and being the example. So tracking, yes, but also I think it goes beyond that and in creating those moments, those touch points with the person, uh, teaching moments. When someone makes an amazing sauce, you go, who made the sauce? You know, I've uh, uh, one of the chefs at the last company I worked for, uh, uh, Chef Gannon, he uh, was at a restaurant called Skull's Rainbow Room, and he would be like, "Hey, who made this? Who made this sauce?" And and you're never sure is he gonna like rip you apart or is he gonna say it's great? And he'd say, "Man, that's on point, bro. Good job." Yes, Good people job. just want to be seen. It's so yeah. powerful to be seen. We all just want to know we matter and to know we're doing a good job. We need that reinforcement, and it's so so powerful. Um, but the other nugget that I want to pull from what you just shared from us is when, when we're doing this trusting, this, this trust and track approach, when we're tracking, um, when we let people know what we're doing and why we're doing it and we, we bring them in on our process and our routine and you say, Hey, I'm not, I'm not critiquing you. I'm critiquing the numbers. You know, I'm like, see, this is why I'm coming to you because this number is off. And I was, do you know why? Can you help me find, fix the number? I'm not fixing you. I'm fixing the number. And I think that's to help people understand that, to not take it personally, but to understand it's not about me. It's about getting the number right. Now you're also empowering them to, tr- to, to pay attention to the number because they don't want you to leave them the fuck alone sometimes, you know, like, oh, like, yeah. oh, shoot, the number's off. Better fix the number before, you know, Monty comes back and asks me why the number's off. You know, you, we can teach people these things and we can make it about the, the thing, not about do you agree or disagree with that? No, I, I completely agree. And if you're not teaching your people, then you're going to find yourself in that same situation time after time after time. But if you take the, you know, that book, two minute manager, phenomenal book. It talks about teaching people so that to think the way you think and to, to 
uh, know why they're doing what they do so that they're not making the same mistake over and over again. Yeah, we got we to gotta move the conversation forward. I'm loving the, con- I'm loving the chat, though, but I don't want to leave anything off the table. So in respect to what you learned and how Wolfgang influenced you and transformed you as a professional, anything that we have to bring to the table before moving on to your move to uh, Nashville? Just that the guest was critical. I mean, he he took so much time and energy to talk to every guest. And um, and my wife and I uh, went back to California uh, for our 10th anniversary a couple years ago. And uh, I took her to Spago. And we were not together when I lived in L.A. before. So I met her here in Nashville. So she had never been uh, to Southern California and never seen the Pacific Ocean. And uh, so... We went to Spago one night after a little pretty woman shopping day in uh, Beverly Hills. And uh, um, he was not there when I sat down, but the GM came over and said, hello, Monty. I understand you used to be part of the family. Wolf isn't here, but he really wanted, um, you know, but we're going to, we're going to send you some stuff and we don't want you to order until, uh, until we say Okay. And they sent out some appetizers and everything, and and uh, it seemed like multiple courses. I'm not sure exactly how many courses it was, but they kept sending stuff. And uh, I think he was at cut that night, and then towards the end, as we're eating dessert, he came by the table, uh, and my wife was like, "Holy crap, that's Wolfgang Puck." That's crazy. And just just showing, you know, the humanity that he has to to take the time to go talk to people mm. uh, is really awesome, and I learned a lot from that. So we have 25 minutes left in this free-flowing portion of the conversation. Uh, we still have to talk about your time in, in Nashville. Uh, we, and we still have to talk about, I mean, we still got 15 years to cover. Uh, and I want to make sure I know, I, I also want to spend some time talking about how you're setting up your business right now. Because um, I think that's something that's really interesting. Because I mean, we can talk about what worked 50 years ago, 40 years, even 30, even 10 years ago, isn't really relative to how to do things now. We're learning so much. So it'd be really cool that with all the knowledge you have, uh, 40 years of experience, you're, you're breaking into your first venture. I think it'd be really cool to talk about why you're and, and how you're setting up your business now and how we can replicate how you're setting up your business now would be really valuable. So I want to make sure we sure. leave time for that. But anything else between you know your time leaving Wolfgang in the early 2000s to um, starting your own business that we can get into? Uh. Like I said, working working multiple units really taught me a lot about how to um, how to not be in the building every day, but still do the things that need to be done. Um, so that was a big, huge part of that. Um, you know, you really have to pick your people well, and you really have to not micromanage, um, but lead and uh, teach and coach. And uh, I'd say probably. The last four or five years, that's been my main focus is just really uh, developing people to uh, the level where they're self-sustainable and they just need a coach to come along every now and then say, hey, great job, or hey, we need to tighten this up a little bit here. And so moving into this new venture where once we get beyond our first concept, um, you know, I won't be able to be in the um, restaurant every day. The chef partner won't be able to be in the restaurant every day. So um, it's, it's really about picking the right people, training them, you know, just spending the time and energy to coach and train, uh, and then communicating what the vision is, letting them buy into that and be part of that, and then 
turn them loose. And, and, uh, you know, one of the early things I learned in life is hospitality is a team sport. I can't do it by myself. Uh, you know, we need good people around us. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that you spent the past few years really learning how to develop people, right? And uh, what, any key lessons, any, can we pull back some layers on that and on the right approach? I mean, you kind of just ran it through real quick. Like you, you drop some giving people, uh, you know, empowering them, giving them vision, um, giving them a, a place to grow. But can we, can we pull back some layers? Can you give us some specific things we can start doing in our own business to really start to learn how to, to, to let people do their own thing and empower people? Sure. So, um, when I was the GM for Acme, I got promoted to the director of ops and a new GM came in that, that I hired. And um, in the beginning, I still did the manager meetings um, just so he can kind of sit and watch for a little while. But then I said, hey, man, you know, this is your show. This is your restaurant. These are your managers. I really want you to take the lead on that. And, um, you know, he took a lot of, uh, what he saw me doing in these meetings about, you know, trying to be positive, trying to really attack the things that are most important, you know, the big rocks of, of things, limiting the time. One of the things I, I didn't like is people be on their laptops or looking at their phone. It's like, look, show the respect to the whole group. We can get this meeting done in half the time. If you just put that stuff away and don't try to, you know, don't try to do two things at once, uh, multitask. And, and, and just kind of power through it. And so, uh, you know, letting leaders lead, obviously, um, you know, when it comes to chefs, when it comes to beverage managers, uh, they're creatives. They don't want to be handed a, a beverage program or a, a menu. They want to be in there, you know, taking ownership of it and, and, and not just management. Bartenders want to create cocktails. Um, you know, the, the uh, chef de partie may want to make family meal and make something sexy that, you know, they can make for the rest of the team. Let's backpedal a little bit because what I'm getting from you is um, there's a way to get people to create or, or to, to develop a sense of ownership without necessarily having any ownership. Right. Um, meaning they don't have equity in the business. Uh, so how do you get people to take ownership? And treat it like their own. And I mean, I feel like that's what I'm hearing from you is like you're you're getting people to treat it like they own it. What things yeah. can we do to get our people to treat it like they own it? Uh, dialogue. I think that if you're telling people what they have to do, um, they're not going to take ownership. Yeah. You're telling people, hey, here's where we need to get. What are your thoughts how to get there? And you may already know the answer, but just asking someone their input, I think uh, they become invested in they're feeling like they're part of the, you know, they're not just a cog in a wheel, but they're part of something special uh, helps with that. Um, what I'm hearing from you, I think you, you kind of, you explained it, um, but I'm just trying to like make sure my listeners picked up on it and people want to create, they might not own the business, but they own the, they, they can get a sense of like, recognition. I, I, I own this creation and technically the business owns the creation because you created it while working for the business. But within the realm of the business, we all know that you created it, that you owned it. Like this was your creation. This is your baby and giving them the creative freedom in the ceiling to be able to create and to contribute is kind of what I pull from you. Um, yeah. I don't know and if you, you realize can, I mean, you that <laughs> name a, you can name a drink after the person that created it. I mean, there's ways 
to give them ownership on, you know, you could have a menu, maybe the chef is not a partner, but you could have the chef's name at the bottom of a menu. There's, there's ways to create that pride of ownership to where they're not going to let the ship crash. Mm. Um, I used to write, um, I used to write a weekly thing to all the managers and, and chefs um, called Think Like an Owner. And it was just kind of a quick, you know, five paragraph thing on, you know, thinking long term versus short term, things like that. Um, what if it was your guest? What would you do differently? What if it was your checkbook and you had to pay for it? What would you do differently? And just getting people to kind of think that mindset. Um, you know, as well as empowering them to, yeah. to be creative. There's, there's, there's a great book around what we're talking about right now. It's called my, it's my company too, by Tom Walter, a past guest on the show. And it's all about how do you create an entangled organization where you have a sense of ownership where you don't know where if you were to walk into a business, you don't know who the owner is because everybody treats it like they own it. It's called, it's my company too. It's a great book. I've had Tom on the, the show in the past. And I'll link to that book in the, the episode where we talk about how to create an entangled organization. He was on the show a couple of times. It's really good stuff. Um, and this is kind of one of my biggest pet peeves and we're just kind of riffing right now with like one of the issues I have. Um, cause you know, the whole purpose of this podcast is for me just to go out and to listen and to, to learn from those and to share those lessons with the rest of the industry so we can grow and transform together. Uh, and, and you know, when I first came into the, the world of podcasting and to create the show, like I was so gung ho against franchises and corporations, a big business, right? Over time, I've, I've learned that I don't think that the, the people behind these organizations always necessarily mean the wrong thing. They have the best intentions sometimes, but one of my issues and I'll finally come full circle is w- when it comes to scaling, it's hard to scale creativity. Um, and I think that's my biggest pet peeve that the, the, the issue, the, one of the reasons why I still kind of have an issue with scaling too big is because when you get too big, you limit the ability for people to contribute and like, and this is the kind of stuff that like it's, do you, do you, are you picking up what I'm putting down? Like, cause consistency is so important in a big brand. So you, but in order to maintain consistency, you need some, you need rigidity and a rigidity within an organization limits creativity, which is right. very stifling for, for culture. And I don't know how the hell I just pulled that out of my ass, but that's basically what I feel. And, um, what like w- reflect on that statement. I'm curious where you're at. Sure. So I've worked for corporations as well as individual restaurateurs. And um, there's, there's great things on both sides. Um, in the world of the corporate world, systems are very critical. And we talked about, you know, having those, those daily things that you do. Um, systems are critical. And I think if you're going to, if you're going to scale, if you're going to franchise, whatever you're going to do, there have to be certain systems in place. Um, when you when you train a waiter or a server, you, you train them. These are the things that we want you to make sure you accomplish at your table. But most people don't say memorize this shtick because the last thing you want to do is have someone walk up to a table and say, hi, how are you this evening? Tonight's specials are, blah, blah, blah. Hi, how are you this evening? Tonight's specials are, blah, 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 because it's, 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 um, it's not endearing. It's not, it feels fake. Right. So there's ways to have systems in place. There's ways to have recipes in place, but allow the uh, personalities involved to, to work within that framework, I think is critical. 
I love it. Um, anything else you wanted to bring to the table you're hoping we would discuss before we start to transition to more of how um, I know you're transit. You, you just le- left your last restaurant group, which was the iconic entertainment. Um, what was your title there again? It was a director of operations, director of restaurants, director of restaurants. Um, yeah, they had some museums as well. So they have Johnny Cash Museum, Patsy Klein Museum, and then they had four uh, restaurants. So I was not the director of ops because we had museums as well so i was director of restaurants okay um and uh, it's kind of a good timing to be transitioning away from a restaurant right now um i don't know how that planned out. i don't know if you're allowed to talk about that uh are you yeah okay yeah get into it so uh so uh started talking to so uh a chef reached out to me on facebook and uh said hey i've got this restaurant in murfreesboro number one rated uh, restaurant and eater. Um, I've got tremendous online reviews. I've got 15,000 followers in social media, but I had a very difficult fourth quarter sales just dropped off. And and so uh, he was just kind of picking my brain. And as we spent some time together, uh, we became friends and, uh, and then we started talking about, you know, the thing that he felt like he was lacking was that front of the house partner that could take care of a lot of that stuff because, you know, it's very difficult to either be a chef owner with no real partner in the front of the house or a front of the house person that doesn't really have a chef partner. So we started talking about that. And, uh, and then he said, there's another guy I really think you should meet. His name is Chris. He owns a company called Made South, and uh, they do uh, events. So we just did, in February, we did um, the Southern Whiskey Society, and it's 10 chefs from all around the South and 30 distilleries. You pay a, you know, you buy a ticket to get in, and it's just a fun party with great food, great, you know, great spirits to try. Uh, he does uh, another event called Holiday Market, which is like this big pre-Christmas shopping extravaganza. Uh, and then he's just uh, partnered with Manit Shohan, famous chef from CHOP. She's got some restaurants here in Nashville. And we're going to be doing the Franklin Food and Wine Festival. So uh, he said, I really feel like this guy should be involved. So the three of us sat down. And uh, uh, Chris is very much a hospitality guy, very Southern gentleman. Uh, I, I was able to go to his last event and he, um, he, just the way he puts these on, it's just very hospitable. So we hit it off and, uh, he had been a, a marketing guy for Dave Ramsey for a dozen years, um, a high up VP. And, uh, we felt like, well, we have back of the house, we have front of the house operational stuff. And we have now a, a marketing partner who also is doing these hospitality events and we can actually tie our restaurants and events kind of together. And so that's kind of how all that started. Uh, we decided to do this uh, two days before uh, the country shut down from coronavirus. And uh, that was an interesting time. Um, and so, as you said, it's not the best time to be operating a restaurant. Um, you know, even come back at 25% capacity or 50% capacity margins are so slim already. It's just not worth opening. Um, it's a great time to be planning a restaurant though. It's a great time to be, there's a <laughs> lot of, and, 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 you know, Alex, the chef, uh, that's partnered with us. Um, he did a great job, uh, 
selling butcher boxes where you could buy these pre-packaged, pre-packaged uh, meats. I'm so happy you're mentioning. I've been saying this for like the past month and a half. I was like, if I was a chef right now, what I'd be doing is going out there and being a, a, the conduit between the the farmer growing the animal and the public who wants meat. And it's been like, hey, like go to a cul-de-sac, knock on every door. Who's interested? You know, okay, I got 15 people interested. That you know, you, you figure out roughly. Okay, I'm going to need the, these many animals, right? Then you break down the animals, you split up the meat. And now you and, and you you just charge for your service to to process the animal. I mean, right. I'm, I'm guessing that's probably illegal. Is that illegal? Is that even possible? Can you do that? Yeah, I don't know if that's illegal. We were actually buying from a supplier who bought from the farmers. Um, so so that was good because you're right. That food chain really gets wonky when restaurants can't sell food. But fuck it, the government's busy right now. They're not going to be able to track all this shit. Just do what you got to do to like stay yeah. relevant. You know what I'm saying? Like get out there, get scrappy. And it's just for now, you know, you're not trying to scale a processing business. You're just trying to stay relevant right now. Um, and I don't, and I don't think even the government's kind of looking the other way. Police officers aren't pulling people over right now. You know what I'm saying? Like, like no, not at all. In fact, yeah. uh, Tennessee opened up. Uh, so a lot of us went to curbside. So basically when we put this partnership together, Dallas and Jane, which was Alex's restaurant kind of came in as our first owned restaurant in the made South hospitality. And, uh, he, um, at right about that time, the governor said, look, if you're doing curbside, you can sell to go cocktails as well. So we were batching cocktails and selling them to go, which was completely illegal before. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it was a way to, to get rid of some product as well as, um, as well as just keep the doors open. So we went to uh, curbside four days a week selling a limited menu, um, talk, which was created by the guys at Alinea, uh, is a, opportunity, a way to be able to go online and uh, Tickets. make a reservation for your pickup and order and pay. Oh, There's really? No money transaction. I haven't even thought about that. So um, you're using talk for the whole curbside. for curbside. Interesting. Yep. I was aware of talk. I love talk because of their approach of being able to basically have a sliding scale because uh, a seat at your restaurant on a Friday night at 8 PM is more valuable than on a Tuesday at, you know, five or four thirty PM. You know what I'm saying? So charge sure. it's a real estate and that real estate has value during different periods. Uh, that's a really great platform, but you're using that to also do pickup orders, get into right. that. That's really interesting. So basically someone goes into explore talk backslash Dallas and Jane and our menu that we're that we're doing for curbside will pop up. They hit the items they want and the number of each item. Uh, then they can actually pay right online, and they also select the time they want to pick it up. So we have a window of hours of operation. We have the menu, and we have a form of payment. And that way, there's no uh, physical transaction that may someone may not be comfortable doing during this time. So that's been great. Um, we also did these butcher boxes. Uh, there was a period of time where we were doing what was called family meal, which, you know, is, is typically when the staff gets to sit down and, and get a free meal at the restaurant together. Um, but this was like Alex made, uh, three different meals. Each meal fed four people and he sold them for 150 bucks and people could come pick it up and just reheat it as they use it. And it was three meals for four people. Um, and uh, that did pretty well. 
so we've been looking for creative ways to, uh, you know, to, to do well while we're not open uh, for dining inside. And, uh, and, and I think that that kind of creativity has been awesome. You know, we have these creative chefs and these creative restaurateurs that are figuring out how to survive during this. And um, it's actually going to make the restaurants that do survive and come out on the other side that much stronger because they're to go, they're going to, they're going to have more focus on to go. They did a lot of gift card sales, right? So they, they focused more on that. So those don't necessarily need to go away when we reopen the dining room. And then the third thing is there's been so much more online presence. Um, Alex and I have been doing a cooking and cocktail show that's on uh, Dallas and Jane Facebook page that he cooks something, we film it, and then I make a cocktail and uh, been able to partner with some great brands to do that. Mountain Valley uh, Sparkling Water is a sponsor of that. Um, and so we've been able to uh, just keep our, the awareness out there even though the doors are closed. Interesting. Um, so what I'm loving about this conversation right now um, is the creativity, what we could be doing right now to, to stay relevant. And, and we mentioned it earlier, but you know, now is not a great time to have a restaurant, um, but it's a great time to plan for a restaurant because there's going to be a lot of opportunity out there. Um, I think that the whole industry is kind of far more, um, what's the word, uh, willing and there's just so much room for creativity with how we do business too, which is the thing that I want to make sure people like, like you're mentioning the, um, these, uh, do like doing events. Right. And, uh, I, one thing I hope I see going into the future is that we get away from the, tra- to the traditional model of getting, taking 10% of everything we sell every day. Right. And thinking more like, okay, well we can sell tickets and we can like, I think the event approach is really powerful because, you know, an experience on a Friday night, like we've mentioned before, is more valuable. So you should charge more. It should be on a sliding scale. The other thing I want to see is uh, memberships. And I think why stop? So when I, I hear you doing like these pack, like these boxes, these these um these butcher boxes, right? Why why discontinue that? Why not start doing memberships, care packages, and in having a group of people that know, love and trust us, right. And having a different level, a more intimate, impactful relationship and charge a membership for that. And that's consistent revenue that we can then predict. Why not create a whole business restaurant around charging memberships to our guests? Why not? Who says we can't? And I think because there's been this massive disruption and we're all being forced to stop together, you know, we can choose how we come back together. We can choose. It's just going to be like this. Whenever there's disaster, there's this oh, like a, a, a forest fire takes down a forest, right? What comes after beautiful growth, you know, so it opens up so much room for, for newness. And I just want people to be hearing these things and thinking about what can I be doing to generate more channels of revenue in my business? How can I be evolving? How can I be getting away from old clunky traditional ways of doing things? Um, so what's your, let me ask, what's your vision for your restaurant group? What are some of these things that you're hoping to do to be creative and to, to be relevant in 2020? So first of all, you've had some great people on that have t- talked about that kind of stuff. The guy that has mutts, that's mm. genius, man. Yep. Being able to like sell memberships to dogs for the dog part. And then the, the owner could sit and drink wine while they were doing that. That was, I, I really enjoyed that. And, and, and being able to listen to, you know, I think that, it doesn't matter if I've been in the business for 40 years. I read voraciously. Um, 
you know, and I, I listen to podcasts and I uh, love hearing new concepts and new ideas because, you know, at 40 years, you know, some might think, I hate, he's the dinosaur, you know, he's the, the way they used to do things. Uh, and I think if we're not always evolving and becoming better, um, and that's probably the biggest takeaway from, you know, coronavirus, if you were a great restaurateur or employee before, figure out how to be better when you come back. Mm. If you sucked, you have a chance to remake yourself and come back and be good. Uh, so those are important things. But I think for me, um, yeah, there's a model of membership that, you know, you could have a, special things that only members have access to um you know whether it's hey this room is a restaurant and this back room is a cigar place that you could pay a membership and be part of or um hey you could pre-purchase uh, a certain amount of food and beverage at a discounted price uh and then you're a member and if you need a reservation on Valentine's, you will get the first chance to make your reservation, things like that. Wine dinners, uh, you know, pairings with spirits. Yeah. And you, you mentioned those collaborations earlier. You had sponsors for these, these, uh, these collaborate, the, the drinks and the the meals that you're putting together, you had sponsors for that. Um, but you mean, I feel like that, is something that you could even that is something you could continue to do. You have an event space in your restaurant. What event can you throw? I mean, you like what things can we be doing to, to be pulling people in community and and get sponsors for that type? I mean, there's so many ways to get creative, and we're so narrow minded within this industry. Um, the sky's the limit. Yeah, when we do this, uh, the Franklin Food and Wine Festival, we're going to be having some chef dinners that lead up to that, and so. Um, you know, we'll probably have some things in some of our restaurants and we'll have some things in other people's restaurants and uh, just a way to, you know, all work together to yes. promote the industry. Monty, has there been anything that you're hoping to discuss that we have not discussed up to this point? No, man, you're a great interviewer. <laughs> Thank you very much. Because <laughs> I love it, man. Maybe it's so much fun. You. I feel like we're just talking about me. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm better at interviewing than being interviewed. I'll say that much. <laughs> but uh, I love this conversation. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to bust out a true speed round. Yes, you heard me mention it at the beginning of the episode. We're going to be putting a lot of energy into mastermind groups going into the future. Uh, We need to be together. We need to support each other now more than ever before in mastermind groups are just one of those ways to do it. One of the best ways to do it, to come together, to share knowledge and to just help each other out, to hold each other accountable. So we're going to be hosting four separate groups of four people in each group. And what we're going to try to do is really put you in a group that's right for you, meaning uh, people that are at the same stage of their career as you, whether that's uh, you're opening your first restaurant, you're, you're, you see the opportunity on the horizon, all these opportunities that are going to be coming with the advent of the coronavirus, or maybe you uh, chose to close down your restaurant during the coronavirus and you want to come back stronger than ever before. Maybe you stayed open during the coronavirus because your business was well-equipped to stay open and you were doing well. And because you were able to do well, you know that you're going to be able to come back from this sucker stronger than ever. And you want to collaborate with other operators who are in the same position as you, regardless of where you are, we're going to put you together with like-minded people to hold you accountable, to gain access to that, that brainstorming power, the, the, the power of four times 
even access to my mind. I'm going to be hosting these. So you get access to me, my mind, my network, and four other people to brainstorm and to, to solve problems and to get that collective experience. It, the masterminding is so powerful. So uh, I want to use these ads to promote what we're doing. It's going to be great. Only 16 spots available. Email me, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com. Uh, put in the title mastermind and tell me a little bit about yourself, where you're at in your business. And I, I'm telling you, do not hesitate. These spots are going to go fast and it's going to be great. So, all right, back to the speed round. Enjoy it. Uh, we're back. And the first question I have for you, Monty, is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Uh, I'd say that I care about people. Yes. I think that staff, you know, staff love, love me because I take care of them and so do guests. I, I love it. You got to give before you get, right? You got to give yeah. that love before you get it. It's so true. What is your biggest weakness? Um, it's hard for me to watch bad decisions being made that are out of my control. Um, whoever has the most knowledge in the room should have you know, an opportunity to express themselves. Um, obviously once you do, if you've got a boss or an owner or someone that's going to make the final call, you just got to go with it. But uh, that's, that's tough for me. It's tough for me to watch somebody go down the wrong path. Mm. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team? I care more about who they are than their talent. I can build talent, but I can't, change character. So I try to ask questions that pull the character of the individual out. You know, if they're, if they volunteer with the blind, they're probably a good person. I love it. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? And you can include the coronavirus in that, I guess. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I don't want to plant seeds, but like, what is your biggest challenge today? Yeah, certainly uh, raising money right now is tough because people are kind of waiting for this to be yeah. over before. Tell, telling me I'm trying to sell ad space right now to restaurant service providers. So yeah. I get it. <laughs> it's a weird, it's weird times. Uh, what is one code of conduct or be actually let's, let's, let's dissect that a little bit more. So yes, it is hard to, to raise money right now. So what have you been doing to be creative to raise that money? Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because we six months ago, we'd probably be fully funded because there's a lot of people that believe in Alex. There's a lot of people who believe in me, a lot of people that believe in Chris that would easily write a check. Yeah. You're an investor's so, wet dream. Like you guys are like, you know, like there's experience on the table. Yeah. So I, I, some of the things that we're doing right now is we're just being very open and sharing, Hey, we're looking for money. We don't really we want to be very careful on who we pick as a partner because these investors will be actual partners, not just silent investors. And so, um, you know, it's like a marriage. You, you, you don't want to be linked to somebody who um, is going to be difficult or, uh, or has a different vision than you do. So we're looking for people that are like-minded like us and uh, that understand that, there's going to be something great that comes out the other side of this. If we're just, you know, patient and do the work. And, um, so I'd say we're like-minded people. We're getting a word out that we are having these conversations and we put together an investor, you know, packet that 
um, is pretty enticing. Beautiful. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? This is something that you do to go above and beyond what's expected. Something that's only unique to your restaurants. What do you guys do? It's hard to say it's unique to only our restaurants. Not but only, there is but a, there is a lack of leadership on the floor in most dining rooms. Um, managers will tell their guest their staff how important the guest is and this is what you have to do and then they hide out in the office um and to me that's like you know if if my wife and i invited a bunch of friends over and we told our one-year-old son hey we're gonna go watch tv you take care of the guests you know these are these are your guests if you're a manager or owner chef these are your guests man and if you're not on the floor um you should not be in this business I love it. Uh, what is one con? Or sorry, one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? So this is a core value, a way to be, a way to present yourself, a way to act. Uh, honesty and owning up to your mistakes. You know, we all make mistakes. We're all imperfect, but um, you know, uh, there's forgiveness in mistakes and honesty. There's, you know, attitude is much difficult, much more difficult to to be forgiving in. Yes. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Uh, Lessons in Service with Charlie Trotter. Um, he the way that they the staff conducted themselves of always looking how to go beyond the expectation. You know that the server had the ability to be able to give someone a free cookbook. You know, uh, I think that there's some really great life lessons in there and just how to be good to people. I love it. What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Tell their staff they're doing a great job. True. Uh, what is one service you've outsourced? So this is not necessarily a technology or a tool, but a person or group of people that do something really well that you've outsourced to do well in your business. Sculpture hospitality, they do inventory. Uh, they, they do weekly inventories on your beverage program. And that was sculpture hospitality. Correct. All right. And it's a franchise. They're different. They're in different cities. That's the main company. And then each, each location may have a different name and they do, they basically come in weekly and they do your inventory for you. So you don't have, you know, you don't have a bartender who doesn't care and isn't necessarily, uh, being accurate, you don't have the bar manager whose bonus may depend on how good the numbers are. You have an outside third party source. Got you. Uh, what is one technology you've adopted within your business that has had a huge impact on profitability, efficiency, communication, anything along those lines? Um, it's it's not a new system, but Open Table for me has uh, allowed me not only to put notes in about guest visits so we can really dial in and make each experience special, um, but also being able to have multiple units where I can go in and see. Danny Meyer does this. He'll look and see who's coming into his different restaurants, and he can kind of plot his course for the night based on who's going to be in those restaurants when. And to me, you know, that's that's what it's all about, making the guest the priority and kind of scheduling yourself accordingly. He calls it ABCD. Always be connecting the dots. 
Yep. yep. I love it. And I'm curious, uh, you mentioned talk earlier, which is a reservation platform that uses that that's geared towards um, events, treating your restaurant like an event space where you sell tickets. And then there's open table, which is like kind of just the more traditional um, make a reservation. So are you, you're using both of these platforms? So right now we're using talk just for takeout. Okay. Are you going to be transitioning to talk or is it just a, a temporary patch? We are looking right now at open table resi and talk. And um, we like the fact that talk was put together by restaurant people. Um, okay. So we're, trying to figure out what works best for our model. I would love to have you back on the show to, to, to discuss which one you went with and why, because I think that would be a really great conversation for sure. Um, okay. The next question is what is, okay, this is actually a doozy. So get ready for it. I forgot to mention that this is the last question. So hold on. It's a, it's a good one. Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your, your restaurants would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you can leave behind for the good of humanity and your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Uh, be kind. One. Uh, learn empathy. Two. And be you. The world, the world needs you. You know, we can all try to become somebody else, but that's not who we were created. You know, and that's not who we were created to be, and that's not who are, what our role is in this world. So be you, the world needs you. Be kind, learn empathy and be you. I've loved this conversation, Monty. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who is one person you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Michael Muser. He's a uh, partners with chef Curtis Duffy. They're about to open a restaurant they had Grace uh, for a couple years. Uh, if you get a chance to watch their Netflix uh, documentary for Grace, it's awesome. But his passion for his people, um, you can see that through the documentary uh, and their commitment to the guest. They literally Google every guest to find out as much as they can about them so that they can tailor the experience. I love it. That is incredible. And that name was Michael Duffy. Muster. M-U-S-E-R. Oh, Michael Muster. Sorry, he's partnering with Chef Duffy. That's right. Um, all right. Uh, look out, guys. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And let the folks at home know, how can we connect with you? If we, um, you know, maybe we want to come join your team. You're growing a team right now. Or maybe we're in the Nashville area or we're willing to re- reaper, sorry, reposition to the Nashville area. What's the best way to connect? So email Monty, M-O-N-T-E, Allen, A-L-L-A-N, Silva, S-I-L-V-A at Gmail. I'm also on Instagram at at the Monty Silva and on LinkedIn at Monty Silva and Facebook at Monty Silva. Beautiful. We'll have those ways to connect in the show notes. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash seven one. This is episode 713. You'll find a summary of today's discussion as well as any tools and services recommended, books recommended, and how to connect. Uh, again, Monty, thank you so much for taking the time. Did I ever ask you what book? Did I skip over that question? No, you did. Okay. Uh, was, lessons in service. Oh, that's right. That's right. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Just for some reason, I couldn't remember the book you recommended. <laughs> They'll all be over there. So head over to the show notes if you want to. Uh, connect with Monty and check out those tools and resources again, Monty, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are 
unstoppable. Eric, thank you so much. This your your podcast definitely helps a lot of people, and I'm glad to be part of it. Oh man, thank you so much. Believe me when I say the pleasure is mine. Well, there we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Monty Silva, man, what a great chat today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. The big takeaways for me in today's conversation is this mentality of tracking the numbers. We, we really got into the having these touch points and having a routine where you come into your restaurant and you know exactly where to go to keep a pulse, your thumb on the pulse of your business. And when those numbers are off, uh, you don't necessarily correct people, you correct the number and you make it about the number and you, you make it into a teachable moment. Or the other big thing too is you, you don't always just speak to your guests when they're doing something wrong. You find people doing things right and you and you enforce and you, you reinforce that positive behavior uh, that came out of today's conversation and this mentality that if you want your people to love you and care for you, it comes only after you show them how much you care for them. Uh, great stuff coming out of today's episode. Again, thank you so much, Monty Silva. And before I let you guys go, I need to remind you one more time, if you are interested in getting the support of peers and coming out of this pandemic stronger than ever before, I encourage you to sign up for the Unstoppable Mastermind group. There's going to be four groups of four, so 16 open spots, and we're going to try to pair you with the right person. So we're going to let all these these uh, requests to join the, the group that come in, and we're going to try to find the right people. We're really going to try to put together incredible groups, four groups of four. In the, the title of the email you send me, include the word mastermind and then tell me a little bit about yourself so we can help find or we can help pair you with the right folks, and this is going to be great. It's about quality over quantity and really establishing strong relationships with my listeners. And that's the new approach of Restaurant Unstoppable. Uh, you know, it's a hard lesson I learned traveling all over the nation, isolating myself and just meeting all these people. My network's huge, but I really want to start reinforcing the, the, the ties between the people in my network and just going deep. And this is going to be a part of that. I cannot wait. I want you to be a part of it. Do not hesitate. Uh, lastly, guys, I need your help spreading the word about Restaurant Unstoppable. So please share the sucker with anybody and everybody you know aspiring to be great. All right. Until next time, peace out.